And I kid you not, I could not breathe. Like as a 17 year old by myself, I was just wheezing, unable to breathe. Uh, and, and, you know, typed away, she, this clerk typed away. He looked up at me and he said, you owe, you know, your family owes this huge medical debt. Can you pay it off? And <laughs> I was blown away by that question. I was like, no, I cannot as a 17 year old pay off this debt. And then she typed away again. She said, can you pay any of it off? I said, no, like I can't pay anything off. Can I get treated, please? And this happened three or four times. And then she gave me back my car. She said, okay, can you go to the waiting room? And I was like, I can't breathe. And she's like, yeah, we, we can't treat you right now. So uh, there are moments I think when I, I know that I'm being discriminated against, that was uh, probably the, the the only moment I can remember uh, kind of in, in the same piercing way that I was, I was like, oh my God, I'm being discriminated against because of this debt, uh, because I could not afford it, uh, because of my my lack of wealth. And so I sat there for almost an hour and my condition got worse and worse, eventually, um, started convulsing on the hospital bed. Uh, and, uh, that's when they decided to treat me. There was like a, a surge of like eight doctors and nurses came in. I, I thought that that was the end. That was the, that was going to be my demise. Uh, at that moment, I also realized kind of the power of government. Uh, I didn't know politics, uh, affected my decision, but later on I would learn just how much uh, politics affected my decision. But I, I became really interested in healthcare systems and government. How do they uh, work hand in hand and, uh, or against each other? Yeah. Those two are probably some of the biggest moments. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Welcome to Activist NNT Candidate Interview Number 5, hosted by Ramona Masachi and co-hosted by me. Today we talk with Muad Herezi, who is running to represent Connecticut's 1st Congressional District. Muad graduated UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina with a bachelor's degree in public health and health policy. He spent three years as a staffer for Senator Chris Murphy and is now running himself. A major catalyst for his deciding to run was a personal experience of what should have been a minor health problem turning into a major health crisis. This is because the minor problem was neglected exclusively for a lack of money. Muad also mentions a related experience while a Senate staffer when a doctor told him of a tooth infection that was left untreated and spread to his heart, ultimately requiring extreme intervention. This enriched all those who saved this person's life, or at least the owners of the hospital, at the expense of the suffering and lingering health consequences for that individual and his family and entire community. Muad's campaign is off to a roaring start, having raised more than $200,000 with more than eight months to go before his primary in August of next year. You can support Muad's candidacy by visiting herezi.com and Muad Herezi on Facebook and Twitter. 
You'll also find a link to donate to his campaign in the show notes. There are three goals of this MMT candidate interview series. The first is to support and give a platform to candidates who care about all people, and because of this, are ignored by the so-called news outlets that are, in reality, news of, by, and for the rich. The second goal is to determine what these candidates need to beat corrupt opponents supported by a corrupt party in a corrupt campaign finance system, and especially, once in office, to avoid becoming corrupted themselves. Finally, the third goal is to create a community of like-minded, MMT-aware candidates who can support each other through their campaigns and especially once in office. The latter is in order to remain focused on what really matters, which is all their constituents, in an environment where there is overwhelming pressure to focus only on the needs, favors, promises, and especially money of big donors, both in and out of their district. If you're a candidate and would like to be interviewed by Ramona, please contact her directly on Twitter at Ramona Masachi or me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If there's a candidate you would like to see interviewed by Ramona, please let us know and please recommend us to them. This candidate interview series is above and beyond Activist MMT's regular episodes. If you like what you hear and would like to support this interview series and this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash activist MMT. And now, on to our conversation with candidate for Connecticut's first congressional district, Muad Harezi. Enjoy. Well, fantastic. Fantastic. How's it, how are you guys doing? I'm great. It's so good to talk to Mulan. <laughs> Finally. So how do you guys know each other? Um, I got invited by, um, uh, I think Maud should tell the story. <laughs> so now you're putting me, you're putting my memory to the top. Okay, okay, okay. I got invited to a group of activists that are obsessed with electoral politics and um, I said, well, why don't we just put all these candidates into groups so they all can get to know each other and try to help each other? And, you know, like they're, if any of them win, they're going to be working together and they can help each other with their campaigns. And, you know, we can help them in any way that we can. And they said yes. They were like, oh, that's a great idea. And so Maud was such a freaking fantastic candidate that he's part of this group that we put together. How long ago was that about? Decades. It's been a while. It's been yeah, it feels like decades. Feels like decades. Wow. <laughs> it's been many, many, many months. All right. Um, age of you know ten, and and uh, she said that there was, there was promise in me. <laughs> no, this is this is probably like yeah, what, four six months ago. It feels like an eternity ago because so much has happened since, you know, because everybody's running a campaign. And yeah. so, so much happens so quickly and changes and, you know, that like, it's like, it's, it's like we've all given birth, you know, <laughs> and it's only been a few months. <laughs> all right. Well, I look forward to hearing this. Um, thank you for coming on. Ramona, introduce and please take it away. 
So I'm Ramona Masachi. I am your host um, of the Activist MMT podcast. My co-host is Jeff Epstein. Say hello, Jeff. Hello, Ramona. Sorry. Oh, son of a... I kind of like it, you know? It's like a... Yeah. It's like music in the background. It's music. Mm -hmm. It feels kind of like a video game that we're, we're in. Okay, thank you for putting a positive spin on my embarrassing moment. Um, uh, okay, so uh, hi, Ramona. Hi, Mawad. Thanks so much for both of you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited to be here. So, Mawad, it's so good to talk to you. I am really excited about your campaign. And the reason why I'm excited is because of who you are. <laughs> and um, I, I've been, you know, trying to learn a little bit about you. And you went to Princeton? No, I wish. I wish I was that lucky. <laughs> okay. I went to Chapel Hill. Uh, oh, you went to Chapel Hill. North Carolina. Although I joke because I was going to apply to law school that, that I, you know, I'm seeking uh, admittance at uh, Princeton Law because Princeton does not have a law school. So all of my... Mm. All of my law school friends laugh at that joke. Uh, I, I think it's more of a charitable laugh. They're like, ha, you're so funny. But <laughs> Well, just, just FYI, that Princeton is pretty much right in the middle of Ramona and me, about an hour away each. Oh, gotcha. Nice. Did not know yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And you, you studied public health? Yeah. So that that is correct. So Chapel Hill, I went to school for public health and health policy. That That was what I spent my time thinking about as an undergrad. Fixing healthcare systems. And did you start something at a health tech startup in Philly? Yeah, so I helped launch a health tech startup. So uh, my senior year, one of my friends who had graduated the year before called me and said, "Hey, we're we're starting this this smart pillbox company. Do you want do you want in?" And uh, it, it was kind of like a from a movie scene where I was like, "All right, let's do it." And and got to Philly a few months later, and they had already started kind of the project, and we were trying to take it to market. So I did that for a little over a year which was, uh, yeah, a really cool experience. I, I'm actually, I'd like to know just where in Philly. I'm, I, I, you know, I've been in the Philly area my whole life. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, I, was, I lived in Temple area. So I lived with some Temple friends and worked down on Market Street. So downtown we had an office at a co-sharing uh, space, kind of like a WeWork. I forgot the name of it. I think it was Make, Make Space maybe or Make Offices or something like that. But, yeah, downtown is where the office was. And I was – always biking around, you know, marketing this, this pillbox to uh, pharmacies all across the city and all across the country and a bunch of other stuff. But <laughs> so I was all mm-hmm. over Philly. Cool. I actually, my, my, for, for a year, I was right across the street from city hall and I was in various places. Yeah. So we're close by. You were just down the street. Cool. Uh, what, what is this health tech startup? Yeah. Yeah. No. So it, uh, it, it's essentially, the continuation of the smartification of everything. Uh, so we have you know, smart refrigerators, smart TVs. So a bunch of really you know smart students said, why did, why not make pillboxes smart? And uh, the the idea, the genesis of it was there was uh, four friends who went to Duke close to UNC. Uh, one of them had cancer and he was a med student and had like 20 medications to manage. And it was uh, tremendously difficult for him to just figure out what medication to take, even though he was a med student and his father was a physician. Uh, just managing that regimen is really tough. But is also critical to your uh, life and, and health. And so uh, we decided, or you know, they decided that they were originally the, the ones who sparked the idea of how about making a product that can help people manage their medication for the chronically ill. Uh, so there are patients who take, I could you not, 
uh, up to 60 medications per day, just a whole lot, especially the, the most uh, ill patients. And so this, this smart pill box would be, uh, would, essentially you'd get mailed to your address a tray uh, that had your medications pre-sorted and you would put that tray into your smart pill box. And then this smart pill box had sensors and had like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and all that good stuff. And so anytime you took out your medications, we can detect that. And so when we have that information, we can provide that to interested parties. So your insurance company might be interested, you know, to, to find out, are you taking your medication uh, because they have a vested interest in making sure people don't go back to the emergency room. So uh, we can work with them to, to let them know that, you know, these patients are doing a really good job of taking their medications. These patients aren't. Uh, but also we can share that information with physicians who would also want to know that information to find out if a patient for some reason was not adhering or misunderstood the regimen. Uh, and then we can share it with loved ones as well. So if you're managing your father's medication, but you're all the way across the country, you can get an, a text or you know an app and, and see whether your, your parents are taking their medications. And if not, you can give them a call. Uh, and, and we also are able to send reminders through the pillbox through the cell phone. So like I said, the smartification of a pillbox. So it had a lot of cool features, it had lights. Um, and yeah, we just try to make it really easy for, for people to manage medications and keep them alive and, and healthy. That's very cool. Um, who are you running against? Yeah, so running against Representative John Larson. He is a 22-year incumbent Democrat. Uh, he is a representative who has a long streak of never being primaried, one of the longest uh, active members. He might be the longest now, to be honest, but he's never once been primaried in those 22 years, which I think is just astonishing. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's unhealthy for democracy to not have uh, accountability and exposure to what people are actually doing in Congress. And our democratic, our district is a democratic stronghold. So uh, Republicans have not held this seat for for uh, decades, uh, at least seventy years, uh, to my recollection. So running against John Larson, he is the fifth highest recipient of corporate PAC money out of all House Democrats. So just tremendously entrenched and beholden to these corporate interests. And uh, his primary uh, financiers are Wall Street and the War Machine, and finally health insurers. So uh, another interesting aspect is that Hartford is known as the insurance capital of the world. Uh, we have a ton of insurance companies headquartered here or with a large presence. And so we are not only taking him on, we're definitely taking on the health insurance industry. And uh, we are doing, I think, a whole lot of uh, exciting work and we're making a ton of progress. And so that's who I'm running against. It's like, you know, it's like every single candidate we talk to is like, there's only one incumbent. They're all the same. They're mm -hmm. all like the ex highest money getter from the fossil fuel industry from the military from whatever it's just like they're all corporate you know i don't know it just yeah. kind of strikes me they're they're all dirty hence why they're being challenged by people who you know are are contributors to society and want it to, to give and change and create better thank god <laughs> um so so what does your demographic look like yeah, great question. So I think demographics, uh, th there's a lot of different things that, that you can glean from them, you know, you can learn. Also, there, there are different ways of, of describing your district. But uh, for instance, the, the biggest question people usually mean by demographics are, you know, racial demographics. Uh, so our district is moving very quickly to majority minority. When the incumbent took over, I think it was closer to 70, 75%. Uh, we, uh, white or Caucasian, now we are at uh, 58% in the 2019 census data, I believe. Um, by the time of the election, I expect that to be closer to 55% uh, majority or close to minority, uh, majority minority. So 
55% uh, Caucasian white. Uh, we have the most Puerto Ricans per capita here in Connecticut, and uh, the majority of them are, are in our district. So we have a lot of Puerto Ricans who are who have come to uh, mainland uh, U.S. Uh, usually because of uh, calamities that strike the island, whether it's uh, a hurricane or a natural disaster, or just lack of economic opportunity there in the kind of the economic status of the island not being so uh, vibrant right now. Uh, so we have a ton of Puerto Ricans here that enrich our community. Beyond that, uh, most of our population is in the urban areas, uh, but we have a sprawling district. Uh, there is farmlands and there are you know, uh, finance uh, kind of traders. Uh, so we have them both in our district. We have... Uh, we have folks in the suburbs. Uh, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty sprawling big district with a lot of uh, diverse uh, constituents. Yeah. And how are you reaching out to these constituents? Uh, the good old way of knocking on doors, uh, phone banking, and the newer ways of of technology in texting, uh, and Facebook ads, and kind of uh, digital organizing. So we do an all of the above strategy: uh, town halls. We you know wherever wherever we need to go to find them, we will find them, and we will we will talk to them. And uh, typically, when we do talk to them, they're enthusiastically supportive of our uh, campaign and, and my candidacy because of uh, the fact that they want somebody who's going to represent them that they can trust. And uh, so, yeah, we go wherever wherever we need to go to to talk to folks. And tell me, tell me a little bit about your experience um, working with Chris Murphy. Yeah. So uh, for folks who don't know, I, I was an advisor, uh, a U.S. Senate advisor. I worked for Senator Chris Murphy for two and a half years. Uh, I worked on a ton of different policy areas, healthcare, uh, immigration, some foreign policy, housing, social security, women's rights. Uh, the list is pretty long. Uh, but the, the biggest takeaway that I, I kind of gained while there is that uh, our, our government is absolutely beholden to these corporate interests and is dominated by corporate money in that uh, there is just lack of creativity, imagination, boldness, and thinking. And uh, there is uh, very little will to, to deliver. It's, it's incredible how quickly things get done when there's a kind of a, a corporate backer for a bill or, or an idea and how, how little things get done when you don't have that type of power backing your agenda. And so after three years, uh, two and a half, three years, I decided that it was it was no longer no longer uh, fitting for me to just continue serving as a staffer. I just got really frustrated and disillusioned, and I felt like it wasn't honestly the best use of my time anymore. And uh, I, I've been inspired by folks like Bernie and AOC, and uh, I truly believe that government is what you make of it, and we just need to change the composition of Congress to start delivering uh, for desperately need to change. And so that's yeah, that, that's my time in Congress. That's what I. I kind of saw and learned, and I'm happy to to elaborate or go into detail. But uh, I have a question: How are you disillusioned? Uh, disillusioned because uh, so so. What really kind of broke my my spirit was after seeing our response to COVID and and the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so uh, I, I felt like those were two moments where Democrats had huge uh, popular opinion on their side. That there was just a huge support for for bold agendas uh, for delivering. You know. To, to actually, you know, change our, our systems. Those were the times. And I just, it was extremely frustrating to see that there was, there was a lack of, of kind of commitment to change and that our leaders were willing to, to continue selling people out, I think, at the most important and, and dire moments in that it, it was, the, the system to me, it was just evident that that was absolutely captured because at, at moments of extreme need, it was still unable to deliver. So that, that was the moment that I was like, okay, 
yeah, I, I, this this system is is broken. I, th- I thought you were going to say something about Chris about Chris Murphy, but but you weren't disillusioned by him. Uh, it, no, it's it's not it's not about an individual person. To be honest, I think that's too simplistic in thinking. It's it's about a system. Yeah. So there there is you know I I don't really ever even talk about individuals. Uh, I think individuals kind of you know you can look at the micro to examine the macro, uh, but the, the biggest thing is is the system. Yeah. Okay. If that makes sense. And what, what, what are the biggest issues, like when you go and you talk to people, what are the biggest issues that you're hearing from, from your, your constituents? Yeah, I mean, uh, the big issues are, are, are honestly the same issues that everyone hears about. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I feel like at this point, it's like a broken record. You know, people want health care. Uh, we live in the insurance capital of the world, but we have some of the highest costs for health insurance. Uh, and people who work at insurance companies get some of the worst insurance, which is just uh, you know ludicrous and a huge slap in the face. People here want a livable wage. We live in the Northeast in one of the most expensive states uh, states in the country, and uh, we have a fifteen dollar minimum wage, which is you know nice to have. But uh, as as I'm sure you both know, that if wages kept up with productivity, we would be at a twenty four dollar minimum wage. Uh, and in our state, can use something I think higher than fifteen dollars, but also. If we don't pass the $15 federal minimum wage, then we continue seeing jobs uh, leave our state for areas that are, have uh, you know, cheaper labor costs. Uh, so people here want a livable wage. Housing is extremely expensive here. We have one of the most segregated states in the country, even though we are considered a liberal and democratic bubble. There's essentially enclaves of extreme poverty uh, that are surrounded by uh, enclaves of extreme wealth. And I think people are frustrated. Uh, and that's a big issue for our constituents here that is I think maybe unique to Connecticut, but I imagine not extremely unique. Uh, yeah, and so it's it's these kind of big issues that uh, people are facing all over the country. Climate change. We have had uh, storm after storm that is historic, unprecedented. You know, you hear these words, and and it's we're starting to become numb to it. It's like every every season we have a you know historic flooding. We had roads break in this past uh, kind of rainy season for us. Uh, just you know things things that look like they're out of movies, like just a huge. A hole in, in the road. Uh, yeah. So I think the, those are the big things that people care about, whether they're in Hartford or, you know, Bart Hampstead in rural Connecticut. And how many volunteers do you have? Uh, I honestly don't know off the top of my head. Uh, we have a lot, uh, you know, fr- from when, since we started this campaign, I've probably had at least 50 volunteers. Uh, we've had college students. We had veterans. Uh, we've had just moms, single moms who want to help out. So yeah, the, the the support is is flowing, and it's 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 people who who just want to see a change, who are inspired. Uh, we have you know remnants of the of the Bernie and our revolution folks who are fired up. We have people who who've you know just never really been too involved in politics that we talk to and uh, want to get engaged. Uh, we have DSA folks. Uh, so yeah, the the volunteer list is is uh, longer than than I I know off the top of my head. And so you're knocking on doors. You're phone banking and you're sending out literature uh, we are we're not mailing literature we we leave literature when we knock knocking on doors that uh, kind of the, the if someone doesn't respond so we have literature uh, we've not started mailers uh, but we knock on doors we phone bank uh, we organize events we attend events uh, we have digital organizing happening digital ads I, I i am working harder than i've ever worked uh, campaign manager is is uh, also a workhorse uh, I, I'm confident that we will win because of the responses we're seeing on doors. And so it's just a matter of knocking on all the doors we need to knock on and 
and I'm, I'm just very, very confident that we will do that because of the response that volunteers and the communities had. And, you know, I think I think in August, people will be talking about a huge upset, but you guys will have heard it here first. It's, it's not going to be an upset. We, we see it every day when we're knocking on doors, talking to people. There is real enthusiasm. There's real energy here on the ground. And uh, we are doing everything we need to. We're doing multiple events a week. We're knocking on doors a couple times a week, phone banking. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's contagious, uh, the, the energy that we're seeing. Oh, yay. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and are you getting any, like, uh, so I know there's like a huge divide in your area, um, just like all of the other areas. Um, are you getting all, any people who are saying, listen, you know, let's say you're talking about um, free higher education or healthcare or um, any, any people power policy. Are you getting people that are saying, listen, you know, are my taxes going to go up or, or are, do, can we really afford that? Are, are you getting any of that pushback? Uh, to be honest, not too much. Uh, mo- most uh, kind of ordinary Americans, they, they care a lot about these policies and, and, and I think that they, they understand. I mean, we talk a lot about a fair tax uh, system and pe- people here, I think, get it pretty uh, pretty quickly. Like we're not talking about, you know, taxing the heck out of the middle class. We know that the wealthy pay a ridiculously low share of their income in taxes and their wealth. Um, and so, yeah, I honestly have not gotten that question a whole lot. Uh, That's good. Yeah, it's not. Good. And then what do you do like when, when you're in Congress, right? You're in Congress and everybody else is saying, you know, like they're saying now, um, you know, we can't really afford this. This is going to cause inflation or, or it's going to rack up the deficit. And, you know, th- this isn't good for us. What, what do you say on the House floor when you want to respond to that and call everybody out? Yeah. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer of MMT. I think that it, it is something that we have to change the way we think about budgets and, and deficits. And I think that there, there are nuanced and simplistic ways of messaging that. And so I would point out merely the fact that we build out banks in 08 with a click of a button without you know worrying about the deficit. We, we've essentially enriched defense contractors through these forever wars without worrying about the deficit. And we can do the same for the American people because we are the world's wealthiest country and we have tremendous resources and, and wealth here. And, and how much money have you guys raised? Uh, great question. We've raised over $200,000. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So we've raised a good amount of money and uh, we, we've like the, the campaign has been just like seriously. So I raised a good amount of money early on and then uh, needed to figure out kind of the, the mechanics of, of campaigning. I've never been a candidate. So for hiring the right people, but we, we are like all hands on deck and uh, the, the kind of the road has been paved and we're, we're, we're running down the street at this point. So we're well, well oiled machine. It's functioning really well. Our campaign is, is doing tremendously well. And uh, we've raised probably just, uh, you know, over the past maybe uh, six, seven weeks, we've probably raised just $70,000. So, uh, so all to say is that we've raised over $200,000 and we are taking off like a rocket ship right now. So it's exciting. And what made you get into politics? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, there, there are a ton of different things, but the, the biggest kind of moments and inflection points, uh, one was some of these honestly happened around the same time. So one was seeing the uh, – so I'm a Libyan-American and born in Libya. I came here when I was young. Uh, so seeing the Libyan revolution in 
2011 and kind of seeing the importance of government. Uh, a lot of times we don't have to worry about a government repressing people in the same authoritarian ways that you know, Middle Eastern governments do, but also seeing kind of the way that NATO had stepped in during the Libyan revolution to protect uh, civilians. So just kind of that moment of realizing like, oh shoot, government matters a whole lot. Like government can make a big difference in, people live, in people's lives for the better or for the worse. Uh, and I'd have always heard horror stories growing up about uh, the Libyan regime just locking people up. Any dissent was not accepted. Uh, there were sayings like, you know, the walls could hear you, that you couldn't trust anyone. Uh, and it was really just authoritarian regime, more so than what the public knows, the general public knows. Uh, so I, I grew up kind of w- with a sense of, of government and politics is important, but around 2011, uh, that, that just ramped up. And around the same time, I had a experience in our healthcare system here that the the inception of why I became interested in, in healthcare systems. But I went to the hospital. My parents had a medical debt that they didn't tell me about, uh, about $20,000. And uh, I went to the same hospital without knowing that. And I couldn't breathe at all. Uh, I had pneumonia. I didn't know it at the time. And so growing up with asthma, I, I knew that the protocol is shortness of breath. You typically get immediately uh, admitted or taken care of. So you get treated immediately uh, and you don't usually have to wait. So I went in with shortness of breath and expected them to you know, tell me, you know, come on in, like we'll get a doctor, take a look at you immediately. Instead, they were like, go over there. And I went over there, realized I was at an insurance billing desk. I was a little uh, curious as to why that was happening and gave them my insurance card. And I kid you not, I could not breathe. Like as a 17 year old by myself, I was just wheezing, unable to breathe. Uh, and, and you know, typed away, she, this clerk typed away. He looked up at me and said, you owe, you know, your family owes this huge medical debt. Can you pay it off? And I was blown away by that question. I was like, no, I cannot as a 17-year-old pay off this debt. And then she typed away again. She said, can you pay any of it off? I said, no, like I can't pay anything off. Can I get treated, please? And this happened three or four times. And then she gave me back my card. She said, okay, can you go to the waiting room? And I was like, I can't breathe. And she's like, yeah, we, we can't treat you right now. So uh, there are moments I think when I, I know that I'm being discriminated against. That was uh, probably the, the the only moment I can remember uh, kind of in, in the same piercing way that I was, I was like, oh my God, I'm being discriminated against because of this debt, uh, because I could not afford it, uh, because of my my lack of wealth. And so I sat there for almost an hour and my condition got worse and worse. Eventually uh, started convulsing on the hospital bed uh, and uh, that's when they decided to treat me. There was like a, a surge of like eight doctors and nurses it came in. I, I thought that that was the end. That was, was going to be my demise. Uh, at that moment, I also realized kind of the power of government. Uh, I didn't know politics uh, affected my decision, but later on I would learn just how much uh, politics affected my decision. But I, I became really interested in healthcare systems and government. How do they uh, work hand in hand and, uh, or against each other? Yeah, those two are probably some of the biggest moments. How would you – okay, so, so I, I've always wanted to ask somebody this question. Um, how would you – let's say we had Medicare for all, right? Uh, How would you build the resources to create a sustainable system? So, I mean, I I don't think we have to even build the resources. The resources are here. It's just a man. It's just a matter of triaging. And I don't honestly don't even think we really have to triage too much. It's a matter of uh, making the system work efficiently. Uh, So, for instance, we have a, a huge amount of doctors. There's always a shortage. Everyone will tell you there's a shortage. I do think that we do need more doctors. But we have a, a, a surplus of students who want to become doctors, and there's this uh, cartel of medical schools and you know people who want to make this bottleneck. So uh, I think we could have enough doctors. It's that's not the problem. So we can treat everyone. I think we have the wealth to continue treating everyone. Uh, I think that 
the problem is, and this is why I'm excited about Medicare, is uh, having government negotiate on our behalf so we're not getting ripped off at the counter when we're paying for prescription drugs and when we're paying for insurance, uh, which is you know completely unnecessary private insurance in my opinion, and making sure we're not getting ripped off uh, by, the, by the physicians in the healthcare systems, which are two different players. So all of that wealth, and, it, and there's billions of dollars there, we put that back into the system. We start educating students uh, in a way that they don't have to graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. We can bring down the cost of actually getting the treatment. Uh, we can make sure everyone has access to treatment so people aren't getting uh, ill. Uh, we can we can you know make it more efficient. And a simple story of, of what I mean. So when I worked for Chris, uh, I talked to a heart surgeon who told me that they had to operate several times a year on somebody who was low income, uh, who, who, who had a, a tooth infection. That infection started seeping into their heart. And, and so what could have been stopped with probably $200 from you know our collective investment ends up costing us as a country tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you know things like that can go a long way to making sure that the system is more efficient and that we have a, a system that operates properly. So I, I don't think it's a matter of getting the resources. I think it's a matter of just uh, making the system work better and taking the resources that we do have that are currently being invested into you know, wealth for the CEOs, these executives for stock buybacks and putting that wealth into investing into more doctors, more uh, nurses, uh, you know, better healthcare uh, systems that, that can reach people in rural areas, things of that sort. And then the system would operate for everyone and not just for uh, a select few. And how would you use the federal jobs guarantee? Yeah. So the federal jobs guarantee, uh, phenomenal idea. I didn't honestly truly understand it until I read uh, the MMT book by Stephanie Kelton, I believe her name is pronounced. Uh, I mean, a federal jobs guarantee, there, there are many ways to use it. Probably the, one of the easiest is, is thinking about infrastructure. Our roads here are always severely damaged. Uh, in the Northeast, we just have a ton of uh, issues. And I'm sure you guys know this because of snow and ice and our roads broke, break very often. So you can put people to work, uh, having them do uh, work on, on construction. Uh, you can have them working on programs to, to end violence in our inner cities. Uh, I mean, the, the federal jobs guarantee, the beauty of it is that every community decides how to use their funds. And even, I don't even think a, a congressional member is the best one to say how they should be used, to be completely honest. I think every town, uh, every neighborhood should have uh, a lot of input into how, how the federal jobs guarantee is used in their neighborhood. Uh, they probably know much better than I would of how it can be used. But th- there are, there are I think, a ton of different ways, whether it's construction, kind of uh, you know, youth programs, having people work uh, in schools. Uh, yeah. So does that answer the question? Yeah. I love the federal jobs guarantee. I think it, it's basically the gateway of opening up um, all people powered policy. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, so when you're in office, will you hold public educational Zoom meetings or, or town halls um, and educate people on policy, um, what's in the different policies that are being presented before they get, you know, um, hacked into pieces, um, and how economics works and how we will be paying for all of this with um, economists and educators. It, because I feel like the, the public, it, we really don't know what's going on. Unless you're like 
really, really active and paying attention, it's very hard to understand what is actually happening. It's like we're, we're completely held in the dark. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, that's a thing that's absolutely lacking in our government, in our politics, in our leaders uh, is this educational aspect. And I think reason, a reason why certain members are so refreshing, like AOC and with her IG lives and kind of breaking down what's happening in government is that one, she's really candid and two, she uh, kind of makes it uh, palatable and understandable for the general audience. It's timely. It's while it's happening. You know, she gets on live and says, this is what happened today. And, you know, th- these are the issues that are stopping us from delivering for working class people. But yeah, I, I think that, that it should be an essential part of a, of a member's job is educating the community, uh, keeping them abreast of what's happening and uh, doing some deep instructing or deep educating uh, for the community and having these town hall sessions uh, where we can go into depth, especially about the most important bills or, or issues that are happening and, and you know, getting into the, the weeds a bit and explaining to people why things operate the way they do, how we can change them, uh, answer any questions and, and have, yeah, have, have an in-depth conversation. So absolutely. And will you bring economists on so that the, so the economists can explain how federal funding works so people aren't left in the dark thinking that we have a limited amount of money? I see no reason why not, uh, why there shouldn't be an economist uh, joining. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've not, I've not like thought through the mechanics of a future town hall when elected who <laughs> will be invited, if that makes sense. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think it makes it, it's totally be uh, reasonable to to bring along economists from UConn and Yale and have them join me. Yeah. So uh, absolutely. I'd like to, I'd like to just put in my, my brief, my pitch about this, which is you're going to get the, how are you going to pay for a question during your own town halls? And so what I dream of is you can say as someone who's not supposed to, you know, know the ins and outs of these things, you're supposed to understand it generally, but you, you know, you're not an economist to be able to say, that's a great question. Come to my how you're going to pay for a question town hall next month, and an economist will explain it to you in depth. But right now, let's stay focused on the current issues. That's 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 why I think it's an, uh, it's an important thing. I'm just emphasizing the urgency of which I feel that. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think that there are, there are constituents that want different levels of information. Uh, there are just constituents that want just kind of a quick thumbnail. What do you mean? Um, can we pay for it? Yes or no? Give me a give me a quick little blurb, and then I got you. Great. Uh, and there are folks who really want to get in the weeds, and I think that they would benefit from having the time to understand uh, the mechanics, uh, the theory, the you know, the scholarly kind of literature behind it, these ideas. So uh, I think people like that would definitely benefit, and, and probably you know would seek out something such as like a deep learning session by an economist. So absolutely, great. And. Um, uh- Jeff, you had a, a series of really fantastic questions. Thank you. Um, okay, so yes, I have one big question. Um, so, Moad, when you enter Congress, basically this question is how do you stay uncorrupted? Um, and so when you enter Congress, you're going to be really pressured to do daily call time for hours a day. You're going to be lavished with favors and promises and future promises. And the, pur- the purpose of these things is to disconnect you from the poor and to connect you with the rich in and out of your district, the rich in your district and the rich out of your district, and to stop paying attention to all of your constituents. Um, It's also true that if you want to be reelected, that you need money, if that's what happens to be your goal. 
So there's a tension. There's, there's immediately a tension. So what will you do to keep in touch with all of your constituents? Balance that tension. And, you know, you can say whatever you like personally, your personal beliefs, and we got to get money out of politics. And of course, I'm going to agree with all those things, but this system eats the best of us. So this is bigger than any one of us. So how will you deal with this in a grander sense? And I think a community of like-minded people has to be some you know, kind of part of that. So what do you envision that being? What is the solution for you? What, what, what do you, what will you do? Yeah, no, it's, it's a terrific question. And I, I've gotten it from, you know, different, different folks while campaigning is, uh, you know, you, you preach a good, you preach a good story, but why are you different? Or how, how do you stay loyal to this, this idea that you have uh, in this, you know, this change you seek? So one thing that's, I think, pretty unique about my candidacy as uh, being, uh, you know, a kind of a progressive running is that I've worked in Congress, was there for two and a half, three years, saw how the system can chill ambitious people, uh, you know, cool their ambition and can can just try to bring you into the institution, make you feel welcome uh, and, and make you play by their terms. Uh, and it, it is a big reason why I decided to run is that I feel like even progressives tend to be less ambitious than I w- what I would like. But just like just like any other job that might try to pull you in a way that that you might not like whether you know you're you're a progressive who might end up taking a job in finance and uh, you have to decide between your values and you, you know what you want to accomplish. Uh, I have goals and, and an impact I want to make and nothing will deter me from that. Uh, so I'm raising money right now. I don't see why I'll be any different during uh, my time in Congress. Uh, I don't really seek chairmanships. I don't seek attention or anything of that sort. Uh, I think that what people respond to, and we've seen this, is that genuine, authentic leaders and people respond to uh, those who they feel are representing their interests. Uh, I think it's why AOC has been uh, very popular. I think it's why uh, you know the, the kind of the Justice Democrats movement overall has been really popular. And and I, I don't I don't see the corrupting influence being so much a problem for for people who originally get to Congress without taking any corporate money. <laughs> the hardest part is getting to Congress. Uh, if you get to Congress without taking corporate money, I imagine you can find a way to never take it. Uh, and so the, that that kind of corrupting influence is not there. But the problem remains of how do you not kind of become so ambitious that you end up just forgetting about the people you serve. Uh, and I think it, it's it's just staying connected and remind, reminding yourself of the impact you want to make. It, it's uh, surrounding yourself with good people uh, who will nudge you the right way if you you know tend to become too focused on uh, moving up the, the leadership ladder or anything of that sort. But uh, none of that stuff really interests me, to be honest. I, I have a theory for change. I don't think it requires going through the you know the chairmanship route or waiting sixty years to have the position you want to you know finally pass your marquee bill. Uh, so my, my theory of change is, is not one that that entails all of that. So uh, you know, just just as like kind of a, a maxim is that there are usually more people on the bottom, whether it's the economy or leadership or you know hierarchy. And you can you can always win by just staying with the people who are at the bottom, as in the bottom is in like those who are I think marginalized. So I don't think you you don't need to be beholden to powerful interests. Uh, there are there are more than enough uh, people who who want to see a change that I can stay loyal to and that I can keep as as friends and allies. And and so I, I really just see no true need to to try to sell out on my values, uh, nor would I ever just in general. But so I, I understand people's like kind of skepticism, but I would say 
people who make it a Congress without taking corporate money, that's a good indicator that they're on the right path. Uh, and then just making sure that they they do not kind of play this game of leadership and in, in moving up the hierarchy. That that's that's a bit trickier. But um, my my theory of change does not require me trying to become a, a chair or anything like that. And I plan to keep all the allies that I'm making uh, right now uh, with me throughout this process. And uh, yeah, my my job is meant to serve them. So I, I see no reason for me to never take their calls or not not hear them out or not work with them hand in hand. That that is that is the entire point of this process for me. Great, thanks. Welcome. Oh man, I'm so excited for you. <laughs> it's it's going to be so great having somebody in office that we can relate to and has you know been through real life and is staying connected with us. And that's going to you know call out the BS of you know how are you going to pay for it and. Yeah not be pulled by that game because once you start being pulled by that game and you you know you you start answering back in a way that ha- feeds into the conflict then you, you say you get stuck you get stuck in a place where you, you you there's no way to get the policy passed you know like you're negotiating with the devil yeah and I'm very very grateful that you are running such a strong campaign. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I think I think it's uh, there's a lot I'm excited about. There's uh, I think we're at a moment where people are just so fed up that we have a real opportunity. Uh, I think to deliver some bold kind of generational and transformative change. So um, hopefully I'll be a part of that. But I'm excited for this moment in general. Why don't Why don't you uh, briefly say you know uh, where people can visit or or you know how they can help? Yeah. So. Uh, it, everyone can visit Horazy.com, which is my last name in our campaign website. It's the one-stop shop. So it's H-R-E-Z as in zebra I.com. And uh, there you can follow us on social media, which is uh, extremely helpful. You can chip in uh, if you'd like to contribute. And you can just kind of you know read about myself, my biography, and my uh, issue pages, what I plan on uh, doing when elected to Congress, uh, God willing. And yeah, that, that's the best place to go. You can also reach out to me if you have any questions or concerns. There's a contact us button. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank you both for, for having me on and allowing me on your platform. And uh, I've been really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, excited to excited to keep it going. Amor, I have one more question. <laughs> I forgot. Okay. So when you're when you're in Congress, will you help other people like you get in? Absolutely not. How could I? No, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's that's one of the most exciting parts is I think having people make it to Congress or make it to any position of power uh, allows the opportunity for them to, to elevate others. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm extremely excited about that part is if and when elected that I can help others who are who are trying to fight uh, the good fight and uh, trying to deliver for their, their constituents. So absolutely. Yay. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you guys for having me. And thank you to everyone who, who may have uh, listened in. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's continue building power together. I love it. Hells yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Maud. Maud. Thank you both. Take care, everyone. Who would also want to know that information to find out if a patient for some reason 
was not adhering or misunderstood the regimen. Uh, and then we can share it with loved ones as well. So if you're managing your father's medication, but you're all the way across the country, you can get an, a text or you know an app and, and see whether your, your parents are taking their medications. And if not, you can give them a call. Uh, and, and we also are able to send reminders through the pillbox, through the cell phone. So like I said, the smartification of a pillbox. So it had a lot of cool features, it had lights. Um, and yeah, we just try to make it really easy for, for people to manage medications and keep them alive and, and healthy. That's very cool. Um, who are you running against? Yeah, so running against Representative John Larson. He is a 22-year incumbent Democrat. Uh, he is a representative who has a long streak of never being primaried, one of the longest uh, active members. He might be the longest now, to be honest, but he's never once been primaried in those 22 years, which I think is just astonishing. Uh, I think it's it's uh, it's unhealthy for democracy to not have uh, accountability and exposure to what people are actually doing in Congress. And our democratic, our district is a democratic stronghold. So uh, Republicans have not held this seat for for uh, decades, uh, at least seventy years, uh, to my recollection. So running against John Larson, he is the fifth highest recipient of corporate PAC money out of all House Democrats. So just tremendously entrenched and beholden to these corporate interests. And uh, his primary uh, financiers are Wall Street and the War Machine, and finally health insurers. So uh, another interesting aspect is that Hartford is known as the insurance capital of the world. Uh, we have a ton of insurance companies headquartered here or with a large presence. And so we are not only taking him on, we're definitely taking on the health insurance industry. And uh, we are doing, I think, a whole lot of uh, exciting work and we're making a ton of progress. And so that's who I'm running against. It's like, you know, it's like every single candidate we talk to is like, there's only one incumbent. They're all the same. They're mm-hmm. all like the ex highest money getter from the fossil fuel industry from the military from whatever it's just like they're all corporate you know i don't know it just kind of strikes me they're they're all dirty hence why they're being challenged by people who you know are are contributors to society and want to to give and change and create better thank god (laughs) um so so what does your demographic look like yeah, great question. So I think demographics, uh, th- there's a lot of different things that, that you can glean from them, you know, you can learn. Also, there, there are different ways of, of describing your district. But uh, for instance, the, the biggest question people usually mean by demographics are, you know, racial demographics. Uh, so our district is moving very quickly to majority minority. When the incumbent took over, I think it was closer to 70, 75%. Uh, we, uh, white or Caucasian, now we are at uh, 58% in the 2019 census data, I believe. Um, by the time the election, I expect that to be closer to 55% uh, majority or close to minority, uh, majority minority. So uh, 55% uh, Caucasian, white. Uh, we have the most Puerto Ricans per capita here in Connecticut, and uh, the majority of them are, are in our district. So we have a lot of Puerto Ricans who, are, who have come to uh, mainland uh, U.S., uh, usually because of uh, calamities that strike the island, whether it's uh, a hurricane or a natural disaster, or just lack of economic opportunity there in the kind of the economic status of the island not being so uh, vibrant right now. Uh, so we have a ton of Puerto Ricans here that enrich our community. Beyond that, uh, most of our population is in the urban areas, uh, but we have a sprawling district. Uh, there is farmlands and there are you know uh, finance uh, kind of traders. Uh, so we have them both in our district. We have... Uh, we have folks in the suburbs. Uh, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty sprawling big district with a lot of uh, diverse uh, constituents. 
Yeah. And how are you reaching out to these constituents? Uh, the good old way of knocking on doors, uh, phone banking, and the newer ways of, of technology and texting uh, and Facebook ads and kind of uh, digital organizing. So we do an all of the above strategy, uh, town halls, uh, you know, wherever, wherever we need to go to find them, we will find them and we will, we will talk to them. And uh, typically when we do talk to them, they're enthusiastically supportive of our uh, campaign and, and my candidacy because of uh, the fact that they want somebody who's going to represent them that they can trust. And uh, so, yeah, we go wherever, wherever we need to go to, to talk to folks. And tell me, tell me a little bit about your experience um, working with Chris Murphy. Yeah. So uh, for folks who don't know, I, I was an advisor, uh, a U.S. Senate advisor. I worked for Senator Chris Murphy for two and a half years. Uh, I worked on a ton of different policy areas, healthcare. Uh, immigration, some foreign policy, housing, social security, women's rights, uh, the list is pretty long. Uh, but the, the biggest takeaway that I, I kind of gained while there is that uh, our, our government is absolutely beholden to these corporate interests and is dominated by corporate money and that uh, there is just lack of creativity, imagination, boldness and thinking. And uh, there is uh, very little will to, to deliver. It's, it's incredible how quickly things get done when there's a kind of a, a corporate backer for a bill or, or an idea and how, how little things get done when you don't have that type of power backing your agenda. And so after three years, uh, two and a half, three years, I decided that it was it was no longer, no longer uh, fitting for me to just continue serving as a staffer. I just got really frustrated and disillusioned. And I, I felt like it wasn't honestly the best use of my time anymore. And uh, I, I've been inspired by folks like Bernie and AOC. And uh, I truly believe that Government is what you make of it, and we just need to change the composition of Congress to start delivering uh, for desperately need to change. And so that's yeah, that, that's my time in Congress. That's what I I kind of saw and learned, and I'm happy to to elaborate or go into detail. But uh, I have a question: Why were you disillusioned? Uh, disillusioned because uh, so so what really kind of broke my my spirit was after seeing our response to COVID and and the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so uh, I, I felt like those were two moments where Democrats had huge uh, popular opinion on their side. That there was just a huge support for for bold agendas uh, for delivering, you know, to to actually, you know, change our our systems. Those were the times, and I just it, it was extremely uh, frustrating to see that there was there was a lack of of kind of commitment to change, and that our leaders were willing to. To continue selling people out, I think at the most important and, and dire moments, in that it, it was the, the system to me, it was just evident that that was absolutely captured uh, because at, at moments of extreme need, it was still unable to deliver. So that, that was the moment that I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, this this system is is broken. I, th- I thought you were going to say something about Chris about Chris Murphy, but but you weren't disillusioned by him. Uh, it, no, it's it's not it's not about an individual person. To be honest, I think that's too simplistic in thinking. It's it's about a system. Yeah. So there, there was, you know, I, I don't really ever even talk about individuals. Uh, I think individuals kind of, you know, you can look at the micro to examine the macro, uh, but the biggest thing is, is the system. Yeah. Okay. If that makes sense. And what, what, what are the biggest issues? Like when you go and you talk to people, what are the biggest issues that you're hearing from, from your, your constituents? Yeah, I mean, uh, the big issues are, are, are honestly the same issues that everyone hears about. Uh, it's, it's. Uh, I feel like at this point, it's like a broken record. You know, people want healthcare, 
Uh, we live in the insurance capital of the world, but we have some of the highest costs for health insurance. Uh, and people who work at insurance companies get some of the worst insurance, which is just uh, you know ludicrous and a huge slap in the face. People here want a livable wage. We live in the Northeast in one of the most expensive states, uh, states in the country. And uh, we have a $15 minimum wage, which is you know nice to have. But uh, as, as I'm sure you both know that if wages kept up with productivity, we would be at a $24 minimum wage. Uh, and in our state can use something, I think, higher than $15. But also, if we don't pass the $15 federal minimum wage, then we continue seeing jobs uh, leave our state for areas that are, have uh, you know cheaper labor costs. Uh, so people here want a livable wage. Housing is extremely expensive here. We have one of the most segregated states in the country, even though we are considered a liberal and democratic bubble. There's essentially enclaves of extreme poverty uh, that are surrounded by uh, enclaves of extreme wealth. And I think people are frustrated. Uh, and that's a big issue for constituents here that is, I think, maybe unique to Connecticut, but I imagine not extremely unique. Uh, yeah. And, and so it's it's these kind of big issues that people are facing all over the country. Climate change, we have had uh, storm after storm that is historic, unprecedented. You know, you hear these words and, and it's we're starting to become numb to it. It's like every every season we have, a, you know, historic flooding. We had roads break in this past uh, kind of rainy season for us. Uh, just, you know, things things that look like they're out of movies, like just a huge hole in, in the road. <sighs> yeah. So I think the, those are the big things that people care about, whether they're in Hartford or you know, Bart Hampstead in rural Connecticut. And how many volunteers do you have? Uh, I honestly don't know off the top of my head. Uh, we have a lot. Uh, you know, fr- from when, since we started this campaign, I've probably had at least 50 volunteers. Uh, we've had college students. We had veterans. Uh, we've had just moms, single moms who want to help out. So, yeah, the, the, the support is is flowing and it's 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 people who, who just want to see a change who are inspired uh we have you know remnants of the of the bernie and our revolution folks who are fired up we have people who who've you know just never really been too involved in politics that we talk to and uh, want to get engaged uh, we have dsa folks uh so yeah the the volunteer list is is uh longer than than i i know off the top of my head and so you're knocking on doors you're phone banking and you're sending out literature uh, we are we're not mailing literature we we leave literature when we knock knocking on doors that uh, kind of the, the if someone doesn't respond so we have literature uh, we've not started mailers uh, but we knock on doors we phone bank uh, we organize events we attend events uh, we have digital organizing happening digital ads uh, I, I i am working harder than i've ever worked uh, campaign manager is is uh, also a workhorse uh, I, I'm confident that we will win because of the responses we're seeing on doors. And so it's just a matter of knocking on all the doors we need to knock on. And and I'm, I'm just very, very confident that we will do that because of the response that volunteers and the communities had. And, you know, I think I think in August, people will be talking about a huge upset, but you guys will have heard it here first. It's, it's not going to be an upset. We, we see it every day when we're knocking on doors, talking to people. There is real enthusiasm. There's real energy here on the ground. And uh, we are doing everything we need to. We're doing multiple events a week. We're knocking on doors a couple times a week, phone banking. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's contagious, uh, the, the energy that we're seeing. Oh, yay. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and are you getting any, like, uh, so I know there's like a huge divide in your area, um, just like all of the other areas. Um, are you getting any people who are saying, listen, you know, 
let's say you're talking about um, free higher education or healthcare or um, any any people power policy, are you getting people that are saying, listen, you know, are my taxes going to go up or, or are, do, can we really afford that? Are, are you getting any of that pushback? Uh, to be honest, not too much. Uh, mo- most uh, kind of ordinary Americans, they, they care a lot about these policies and and, and I think that they, they understand. I mean, we talk a lot about a fair tax uh, system and pe- people here, I think, get it pretty uh, pretty quickly. Like we're not talking about, you know, taxing the heck out of the middle class. We know that the wealthy pay a ridiculously low share of their income in taxes and their wealth. Um, and so, yeah, I honestly have not gotten that question a whole lot. Uh, That's good. Yeah, it's not. Good. And then what do you do like when, when you're in Congress, right? You're in Congress and everybody else is saying, you know, like they're saying now, um, you know, we can't really afford this. This is going to cause inflation or, or it's going to rack up the deficit. And, you know, th- this isn't good for us. What, what do you say on the House floor when you want to respond to that and call everybody out? Yeah. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer of MMT. I think that it is something that we have to change the way we think about budgets and deficits. And I think that there are, there are nuanced and simplistic ways of messaging that. And so I would point out merely the fact that we build out banks in 08 with a click of a button without you know worrying about the deficit. We, we've we essentially enriched defense contractors through these forever wars without worrying about the deficit. And we can do the same for the American people because we are the world's wealthiest country and we have tremendous resources and, and wealth here. And and how much money have you guys raised? Uh, great question. We've raised over two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Wow! Yeah. yeah, so we've raised a good amount of money, and uh, we we've like the the campaign has been just like seriously. So I raised a good amount of money early on, and then. Uh, needed to figure out kind of the, the mechanics of, of campaigning. I've never been a candidate, so for hiring right people. But we we are like. All hands on deck, and uh, the the kind of the road has been paved, and we're we're, we're running down the street at this point. So we're well well oiled machine. It's functioning really well. Our campaign is, is doing tremendously well, and uh, we've raised probably just uh, you know over the past maybe uh, six seven weeks, we've probably raised just seventy thousand dollars. So uh, so all to say is that we've raised over two hundred thousand dollars, and we are taking off like a rocket ship right now. So it's exciting. And what made you get into politics? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, there, there are a ton of different things, but the, the biggest kind of moments and inflection points, uh, one was some of these honestly happened around the same time. So one was seeing the uh, – so I'm a Libyan-American and born in Libya. I came here when I was young. Uh, so seeing the Libyan revolution in 2011 and kind of seeing the importance of government, uh, a lot of times we don't have to worry about a government – repressing people in the same authoritarian ways that you know, Middle Eastern governments do, but also seeing kind of the way that NATO had stepped in during the Libyan revolution to protect uh, civilians. So just kind of that moment of realizing like, oh shoot, government matters a whole lot. Like government can make a big difference in people's lives, in people's lives for the better or for the worse. Uh, and I'd always heard horror stories growing up about uh, the Libyan regime just locking people up. Any dissent was not accepted uh, there were sayings like, you know, the walls could hear you, that you couldn't trust anyone. Uh, and it was really just authoritarian regime, more so than what the public knows, the general public knows. Uh, so I, I grew up kind of w- with a sense of, of government and politics is important, but 
around 2011, uh, that, that just ramped up. And around the same time, I had a experience in our healthcare system here that the the inception of why I became interested in, in healthcare systems. But I went to the hospital. My parents had a medical debt that they didn't tell me about, uh, about $20,000. And uh, I went to the same hospital without knowing that. And I couldn't breathe at all. Uh, I had pneumonia. I didn't know it at the time. And so growing up with asthma, I, I knew that the protocol is shortness of breath. You typically get immediately uh, admitted or taken care of. So you get treated immediately uh, and you don't usually have to wait. So I went in with shortness of breath and expected them to you know, tell me, you know, come on in, like we'll get a doctor, take a look at you immediately. Instead, they were like, go over there. And I went over there, realized I was at an insurance billing desk. I was a little uh, curious as to why that was happening and gave them my insurance card. And I kid you not, I could not breathe. Like as a 17 year old by myself, I was just wheezing, unable to breathe. Uh, and, and you know, typed away, she, this clerk typed away. He looked up at me and he said, you owe, you know, your family owes this huge medical debt. Can you pay it off? And I was blown away by that question. I was like, no, I cannot as a 17 year old pay off this debt. And then she typed away again. She said, can you pay any of it off? I said, no, like I can't pay anything off. Can I get treated, please? And this happened three or four times. And then she gave me back my card. She said, okay, can you go to the waiting room? And I was like, I can't breathe. And she's like, yeah, we, we can't treat you right now. So uh, there are moments I think when I, I know that I'm being discriminated against, that was uh, probably the, the the only moment I can remember uh, kind of in, in the same piercing way that I was, I was like, oh my God, I'm being discriminated against because of this debt, uh, because I could not afford it, uh, because of my my lack of wealth. And so I sat there for almost an hour and my condition got worse and worse. Eventually uh, started convulsing on the hospital bed uh, and uh, that's when they decided to treat me. There was like a, a surge of like eight doctors and nurses came in. I, I thought that that was the end. That was, was going to be my demise. Uh, at that moment, I also realized kind of the power of government. Uh, I didn't know politics uh, affected my decision, but later on I would learn just how much uh, politics affected my decision. But I, I became really interested in healthcare systems and government. How do they uh, work hand in hand and, uh, or against each other? Yeah, those two are probably some of the biggest moments. How would you – okay, so, so I, I've always wanted to ask somebody this question. Um, how would you – let's say we had Medicare for all, right? Uh, how would you build the resources to create a sustainable system? So, I mean, I, I don't think we have to even build the resources. The resources are here. It's just a man. It's just a matter of triaging. And I don't I honestly don't even think we really have to triage too much. It's a matter of uh, making the system work efficiently. Uh, so, for instance. We have a huge amount of doctors. There's always a shortage. Everyone will tell you there's a shortage. I do think that we do need more doctors, but we have a, a, a surplus of students who want to become doctors. And there's this uh, cartel of medical schools and you know people who want to make this bottleneck. So uh, I think we could have enough doctors. It's That's not the problem. So we can treat everyone. I think we have the wealth to continue treating everyone. Uh, I think that the problem is, and, and this is why I'm excited about Medicare, is uh, having government negotiate on our behalf so we're not getting ripped off at the counter when we're paying for prescription drugs and when we're paying for insurance, uh, which is you know completely unnecessary private insurance in my opinion, and making sure we're not getting ripped off uh, by, the, by the physicians and the healthcare systems, which are two different players. So all of that wealth, and, it, and there's billions of dollars there, we put that back into the system. We start educating students uh, in a way that they don't have to graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. We can bring down the cost of actually getting the treatment uh, we can make sure everyone has access to treatment, so people aren't getting uh, ill. Uh, we can we can you know make it more efficient. And a simple story of, of what I mean. So when I worked for Chris, uh, I talked to a heart surgeon who told me that they had to operate several times a year on somebody who is low income, 
who 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 had a, a tooth infection. That infection started seeping into their heart, and and so what could have been stopped with probably two hundred dollars from you know our collective investment ends up costing us as a country tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you know things like that can go a long way to making sure that the system is more efficient and that we have a, a system that operates properly. So I, I don't think it's a matter of getting the resources. I think it's a matter of just uh, making the system work better and taking the resources that we do have that are currently being invested into you know, wealth for the CEOs, these ex- executives for stock buybacks and putting that wealth into investing into more doctors, more uh, uh, nurses, uh, you know, better healthcare uh, systems that, that can reach people in rural areas, things of that sort. And then the system would operate for everyone and not just for uh, select few. And how would you use the federal jobs guarantee? Yeah, so the federal jobs guarantee, uh, phenomenal idea. Uh, I didn't honestly truly understand it until I read uh, the MMT book by Stephanie Kelton, I believe her name is pronounced. Uh, I mean, a federal jobs guarantee, there, there are many ways to use it. Probably the, one of the easiest is, is thinking about infrastructure. Our roads here are always severely damaged. Uh, in the Northeast, we just have a ton of uh, issues. And I'm sure you guys know this because of snow and ice and our roads broke, break very often. So you can put people to work, uh, having them do uh, work on, on construction. Uh, you can have them working on programs to, to end violence in our inner cities. Uh, I mean, the, the federal jobs guarantee, the beauty of it is that every community decides how to use their funds. And even, I don't even think a, a congressional member is the best one to say how they should be used to be completely honest i think every town uh every neighborhood should have uh, a lot of input into how how the federal jobs guarantee is used in their neighborhood uh, they probably know much better than i would of how it can be used but th- there are there are i think a ton of different ways whether it's construction kind of uh, you know youth programs having people work uh, in schools uh yeah so does that answer the question yeah I love the federal jobs guarantee. I think it's basically the gateway of opening up um, all people-powered policy. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, So when you're in office, will you hold public educational Zoom meetings or or town halls um, and educate people on policy, um, what's in the different policies that are being presented before they get, you know, um, hacked into pieces, um, and how economics works and how we will be paying for all of this with um, economists and educators. It, because I feel like the, the public, it, we really don't know what's going on, unless you're like really, really active and paying attention, it's very hard to understand what is actually happening. It's like we're, we're completely held in the dark. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, that's a thing that's absolutely lacking in our government, in our politics, in our leaders, uh, is this educational aspect. And I think reason, a reason why certain members are so refreshing, like AOC and with her IG lives and kind of breaking down what's happening in government is that one, she's really candid and two, she uh, kind of makes it uh, palatable and understandable for the general audience. It's timely. It's while it's happening. You know, she gets on live and says, "This is what happened today," and you know, th- these are the issues that are stopping us from delivering for working class people. But yeah, I, I think that that it should be an essential part of a, of a member's job is educating the community, uh, keeping them abreast of what's happening, and uh, doing some deep 
instructing or deep educating uh, for the community and having these town hall sessions uh, where we can go into depth, especially about the most important bills or, or issues that are happening and, and you know, getting into the, the weeds a bit and explaining to people why things operate the way they do, how we can change them, uh, answer any questions and, and have, yeah, have, have an in-depth conversation. So absolutely. And will you bring economists on so that the, so the economists can explain how federal funding works so people aren't left in the dark thinking that we have a limited amount of money? I see no reason why not, uh, why there shouldn't be an economist uh, joining. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've not I've not like thought through the mechanics of a future town hall when elected who <laughs> will be invited, if that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it makes it, it's fully be uh, reasonable to to bring along economists from UConn and Yale and have them join me. Yeah. So uh, absolutely. I'd like to, I'd like to just put in my, my brief, my pitch about this, which is you're going to get the, how are you going to pay for a question during your own town halls? And so what I dream of is you can say as someone who's not supposed to, you know, know the ins and outs of these things, you're supposed to understand it generally, but you, you know, you're not an economist to be able to say, that's a great question. Come to my how you're going to pay for a question town hall next month, and an economist will explain it to you in depth. But right now, let's stay focused on the current issues. That's 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 why I think it's an, uh, it's an important thing. I'm just emphasizing the urgency of which I feel that. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think that there are there are constituents that want different levels of information. Uh, there are just constituents that want just kind of a quick thumbnail. What do you mean? Um, can we pay for it? Yes or no? Give me a give me a quick little blurb, and then I got you. Great. Uh, and there are folks who really want to get in the weeds, and I think that they would benefit from having the time to understand uh, the mechanics, uh, the theory, the you know, the scholarly kind of literature behind these ideas. So uh, I think people like that would definitely benefit, and, and probably you know would seek out something such as like a deep learning session by an economist. So absolutely great. And. Um, uh- Jeff, you had a, a series of really fantastic questions. Thank you. Um, okay, so yes, I have one big question. Um, so, Moad, when you enter Congress, basically this question is how do you stay uncorrupted? Um, and so when you enter Congress, you're going to be really pressured to do daily call time for hours a day. You're going to be lavished with favors and promises and future promises. And the, pur- the purpose of these things is to disconnect you from the poor and to connect you with the rich in and out of your district, the rich in your district and the rich out of your district, and to stop paying attention to all of your constituents. Um, It's also true that if you want to be reelected, that you need money, if that's what happens to be your goal. So there's a tension, there's there's immediately a tension. So what will you do to keep in touch with all of your constituents, balance that tension, and you know, you can say whatever you like, personally, your personal beliefs, and we got to get money out of politics. And of course, I'm going to agree with all those things, but this system eats the best of us. So this is bigger than any one of us. So how will you deal with this in a grander sense? And I think a community of like-minded people has to be some, you know, kind of part of that. So what do you envision that being? What is the solution for you? What, what, what do you what will you do? Yeah, no, it's it's a terrific question, and I, I've gotten it from you know different different folks while campaigning. Is uh, you know you you preach a good you preach a good story, but 
why are you different or how, how do you stay loyal to this this idea that you have uh, in this you know this change you seek so one thing that's i think pretty unique about my candidacy as uh, being uh, you know a kind of a progressive running is that i've worked in congress was there for two and a half three years saw how the system can chill ambitious people uh, you know cool their ambition and can can just try to bring you into the institution make you feel welcome uh, and, and make you play by their terms. Uh, and it, it is a big reason why I decided to run is that I feel like even progressives tend to be less ambitious than I w- what I would like. But just like just like any other job that might try to pull you in a way that that you might not like, whether you know, you're know you a progressive who might end up taking a job in finance and uh, you have to decide between your values and you, you know what you want to accomplish. Uh, I have goals and, and an impact I want to make and nothing will deter me from that. Uh, so I'm raising money right now. I don't see why I'll be any different during uh, my time in Congress. Uh, I don't really seek chairmanships. I don't seek attention or anything of that sort. Uh, I think that what people respond to, and we've seen this, is that genuine, authentic leaders and people respond to uh, those who they feel are representing their interests. Uh, I think it's why AOC has been uh, very popular. I think it's why uh, you know, the, the kind of the Justice Democrats movement overall has been really popular, and and I, I don't I don't see the corrupting influence being so much a problem for for people who originally get to Congress without taking any corporate money. <laughs> the hardest part is getting to Congress. Uh, if you get to Congress without taking corporate money, I imagine you can find a way to never take it, uh, and so the, that that kind of corrupting influence is not there. But the problem remains of how do you not kind of become so ambitious that you end up just forgetting about the people you serve. Uh, and I think it, it's it's just staying connected and remind, reminding yourself of the impact you want to make. It, it's uh, surrounding yourself with good people uh, who will nudge you the right way if you you know tend to become too focused on moving up the, the leadership ladder or anything of that sort. But uh, none of that stuff really interests me, to be honest. Uh, I, I have a theory for change. I don't think it requires going through the, you know, the chairmanship route or waiting 60 years to have the position you want to, you know, finally pass your marquee bill. Uh, so my, my theory of change is, is not one that that entails all of that. So uh, you know, j- just just as like kind of a, a maxim is that there are usually more people on the bottom, whether it's the economy or leadership or you know hierarchy, and you can you can always win by just staying with the people who are at the bottom, as in the bottom is in like those who are I think marginalized. So I don't think you you don't need to be beholden to powerful interests. Uh, there are there are more than enough uh, people who, who want to see a change that I can stay loyal to and that I can keep as, as friends and allies. And, and so I, I really just see no true need to, to try to sell out my values, uh, nor would I ever just in general. But so I, I understand people's like kind of skepticism, but I would say people who make it a Congress without taking corporate money, that's a good indicator that they're on the right path. Uh, and then just making sure that they they do not kind of play this game of leadership and in, in moving up the hierarchy that that's that's a bit trickier but um my, my theory of change does not require me trying to become a, a chair or anything like that and i plan to keep all the allies that i'm making uh, right now uh, with me throughout this process and uh, yeah my, my job is meant to serve them so I, I see no reason for me to never take their calls or not not hear them out or not work with them hand in hand that that is that is the entire point of this process for me great thanks welcome Oh man, I'm so excited for you. <laughs> it's it's going to be so great having somebody in office that we can relate to and has, you know, been through real life and is staying connected with us. 
And that's going to, you know, call out the BS of, you know, how are you going to pay for it? And yeah. not be pulled by that game. Because once you start being pulled by that game and, you you know, you, you start answering back in a way that ha- feeds into the conflict, then you, you say you get stuck. You get stuck in a place where you, 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 there's no way to get the policy passed, you know, like you're negotiating with the devil. Yeah. And I'm very, very grateful that you are running such a strong campaign. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's, uh, there's a lot I'm excited about. There's, uh, I think we're at a moment where people are just so fed up that we have a real opportunity, uh, I think, to deliver some bold kind of generational and transformative change. So um, hopefully I'll be a part of that, but I'm excited for this moment in general. Why don't, why don't you uh, briefly say, you know, uh, where people can visit or, or, you know, how they can help? Yeah. So uh, it, everyone can visit Horazy.com, which is my last name in our campaign website. It's the one-stop shop. So it's H-R-E-Z as in zebra I dot com and uh, there you can follow us on social media which is uh, extremely helpful you can chip in uh, if you'd like to contribute and you can just kind of you know read about myself my biography uh, my uh, issue pages what i plan on uh, doing when elected to congress uh, god willing and yeah that, that's the best place to go you can also reach out to me if you have any questions or concerns there's contact us button uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank you both for, for having me on and allowing me on your platform. And uh, I've been really enjoyed the conversation. And, yeah, excited to excited to keep it going. Um, what? I have one more question. <laughs> I forgot. Okay. So when you're when you're in Congress, will you help other people like you get in? Absolutely not. How could I? No, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's that's one of the most exciting parts is I think having people make it to Congress or make it to any position of power uh, allows the opportunity for them to, to elevate others. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm extremely excited about that part is if and when elected that I can help others who are who are trying to fight uh, the good fight and uh, trying to deliver for their, their constituents. So absolutely. Yay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you guys for having me, and thank you to everyone who may have uh, listened in. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's continue building power together. I love it. Hell's yeah! <laughs> Thanks so much, Mod. Mod. Thank you both. Take care, everyone. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits 
and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn, and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Welcome to Activist MMT Candidate Interview Number 5, hosted by Ramona Masachi and co-hosted by me. Today we talk with Muwad Herezi, who is running to represent Connecticut's 1st Congressional District. Muwad graduated UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina with a bachelor's degree in public health and health policy. He spent three years as a staffer for Senator Chris Murphy and is now running himself. A major catalyst for his deciding to run was a personal experience of what should have been a minor health problem turning into a major health crisis. This is because the minor problem was neglected exclusively for a lack of money. Muad also mentions a related experience while a Senate staffer when a doctor told him of a tooth infection that was left untreated and spread to his heart, ultimately requiring extreme intervention. This enriched all those who saved this person's life, or at least the owners of the hospital, at the expense of the suffering and lingering health consequences for that individual and his family and entire community. Muad's campaign is off to a roaring start, having raised more than $200,000 with more than eight months to go before his primary in August of next year. You can support Muad's candidacy by visiting herezi.com and Muad Herezi on Facebook and Twitter. You'll also find a link to donate to his campaign in the show notes. There are three goals of this MMT candidate interview series. The first is to support and give a platform to candidates who care about all people, and because of this, are ignored by the so-called news outlets that are, in reality, news of, by, and for the rich. The second goal is to determine what these candidates need to beat corrupt opponents supported by a corrupt party and a corrupt campaign finance system, and especially once in office, to avoid becoming corrupted themselves. 
Finally, the third goal is to create a community of like-minded MMT-aware candidates who can support each other through their campaigns and especially once in office. The latter is in order to remain focused on what really matters, which is all their constituents, in an environment where there is overwhelming pressure to focus only on the needs, favors, promises, and especially money of big donors, both in and out of their district. If you're a candidate and would like to be interviewed by Ramona, please contact her directly on Twitter at Ramona Masachi or me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If there's a candidate you would like to see interviewed by Ramona, please let us know and please recommend us to them. This candidate interview series is above and beyond Activist MMT's regular episodes. If you like what you hear and would like to support this interview series and this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash activist MMT. And now, on to our conversation with candidate for Connecticut's first congressional district, Muad Harezi. Enjoy. <laughs> 